Hey everyone, Bill Barhead here. Welcome to the Abra Money 3.0 show where I talk about the future of money and technology. Today I'm excited to give you the final part of a three-part series I did with Saifedita Moose, an economist and the author of the hugely popular book, The Bitcoin Standard. To listen to parts one and two, you can check out the previous episodes of the Money 3.0 show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. In this episode, we'll be talking macroeconomics, the state of the world today, and SAFE's ideas around meat-based diets and government control run amok. But before we get into it, I want to warn you that some of the views presented here are extreme and don't necessarily reflect my personal views or those of Abra, but we felt that it was important to present SAFE's views on their raw, unedited form. The information presented in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be used or construed as an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any of the financial assets discussed. This report should not be construed as advice designed to meet the particular investment needs of any investor. Any opinions expressed herein are subject to change. Neither Aber nor any of the participants in this podcast make any representation as to the suitability or appropriateness of these financial assets for individual investors. Investors must make their own determination, either alone or in consultation with their own financial advisors, as to the suitability or appropriateness of such investments. So without further ado, I present to you part three of my discussion with Saifedean Amus. Enjoy. You, you've uh, been very clear online in your thoughts on this. You, you've railed against government responses and overreach vis-a-vis, you know, the world government's coronavirus response. You know, what do you think we should be proactively doing as a society to address the current situation? Or should we simply allow people to go about their business? Um, I think uh, I generally uh, am an individualist, so I, I don't believe that uh, uh, groups can act. I don't think a society can do anything. I think individuals can take decisions, and I think um, individuals can take decisions uh, jointly with other individuals who want to take decisions with them. So that's how I'd like to think of it. Um, so my honest opinion is, first of all, I don't think government should be doing absolutely anything at all. Um, nothing they have done has been helpful. Everything they have done has been uh, absolutely destructive. I think this um, th- this belief that just because something is bad, therefore it follows that government must do something, and therefore that doing something is better than nothing, is um, I-, I find it mistaken. I think uh, you don't have to do something. Sometimes bad things happen, and doing something can make them worse. In fact, every time that you're going to be introducing the power of government, uh, which is coercive and which uh, doesn't um, doesn't have to deal with price signals and with market uh, with the test of profit and loss in a market, you're very likely to be making things worse. Mm. And so, I think you know the, um, the 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 way that I look at it, and um, this is extremely controversial to be saying this today, is that. Um, you know, you should be very, very, very careful and you should take precautions, but that does not mean locking people at home. It means watch your food, watch what you eat. Um, that, this is really the best way to protect uh, yourself from the, uh, this virus. As you know, now we've had several months of data and we see that basically uh, young people who are healthy are at practically zero risk of uh, developing uh, uh, serious complications from this. So if you stay away from foods that are highly inflammatory, particularly sugars and um, uh, seed oils, I think are are the absolute worst. And if you eat well, if you get nourished well, and in my mind, that means eating a lot of meat, 
um, you will boost your immune system to the point where such things are, you know, you could catch it, but it won't be the end of the world. You'll get sick for a day or two or maybe. Uh, my own brother is a doctor in New York. Hmm. He's, he was at a hospital where he treated hundreds of these patients and um, he's pretty sure he contracted it. Um, he got sick. He didn't test himself. He, ha he hasn't taken the test yet, but he got sick for a day had a sore throat, or, you know, he, he, he was dealing with the patient and he became a little too close with the patient while dealing with I them. See. And, and then, yeah, and then he, he couldn't sleep that night and he had a little bit of a sore throat, but then he was fine the next day. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, if, uh, you know, what the, the virus is not so much the problem itself in as much as it is exposing the massively compromised immune system of a population that has been eating a lot of junk for a very long time. And, right. You know, uh, it's it's amazing that uh, the the sad thing about this kind of world, where uh, government is constantly telling people to eat more grains and to eat less meat, and to uh, you know that you can eat junk food in moderation, which it's of course extremely nonsensical because junk food is highly addictive. So that's like saying you know um, cocaine is fine in moderation or heroin is fine for you in moderation. You can't do those things in moderation. Yeah. It's it's very hard. And you know these foods, um, industrial junk food is has has been designed for a hundred years. It's just the science of how to get you to eat more. And so the, it's it's very hard. I'm sorry. Got its own R zero, right? I mean, it's it's meant to be addicting. Starbucks is meant. To, Starbucks is the ultimate business model. It is addicting. It's yeah. Pleasure versus pain, uh, and the cost is tremendous, but it creeps up on you. So it's like the perfect business model if you want to take advantage of what you're saying. Absolutely, and um, you know, it's. Uh, I think the the amazing thing is that you know when people say, "All right, well, we need to just lock down. We have to do something." Is remember you're tasking the same people who have been telling you for 50 years to eat more junk and you're expecting them to lock everybody at home and that they're going to do this well and it's going to work and it's going to be a good idea and we're trusting them on the fact that this is a good idea yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in the first place um so i think you know uh freeing your mind from uh, the kind of dependence on government in terms of their advice and in terms of expecting them to save you is really uh, the, the first step. Uh, eating well, taking care of your health is the second step. And beyond that, I think, you know, it, it's clear, obviously, this virus does seem to be very, very serious for people who are old and for people who have compromised yeah. immune systems. And for that, I mean, I couldn't think of something worse to do than to shut down society, impoverish people, and lock everybody behind uh, at home, you know, because you're not helping the poor people in society if you put their children out of business. You're making their life worse. You're making it less likely that they would be able to afford good food. You're making it less likely that they can go outside and get fresh sunshine. You're, I mean, I think the, 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 the obscene thing about it for me is is just the, the, the insulting paternalism of the idea that, all right, we've figured out what's best for you, which is to stay home. As if somehow one guy deciding in, at the World Health Organization, the, they know what is best for everybody, overrides 7 billion people figuring out what is best for them. 
you know, I've lived on this earth long enough to have my own ideas about how I get sick and how I get healthy. And I know that, you know, going to the sun is better for me. Eating this thing is bad for me. Um, being able to spend money on eating good food is good for me. And when you, when you just impose this kind of top-down solution, when you tell people, all right, nobody works, nobody can leave home, stay home, um, you, you, you limit the, option of, uh, the, the space of options available for people drastically. And um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% certain that you know, as more data comes along, this is going to be clearly an absolute catastrophe mm. and not even comparable to the virus in terms of its damage and its impact. It's not going to be even close. We've already gotten more than 30 million people unemployed in the US, more than 120 million unemployed in India. Um, you know, the, the, there'll be billions of people who will suffer financially from this for many years to come. And of course, that's going to include a massive death toll as well. You know, diseases like malaria and tuberculosis and all the other very serious diseases that are constantly killing people, they are all exacerbated by the fact that people can't leave their home, by the fact that people are poorer, by the fact that people can't work, can't get decent uh, food. All of these things are going to get massively exacerbated over time, and it's just going to continue to get worse. And it's 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 absolutely tragic. It's uh, it, it, it's mind blowing. I if you see my Twitter the last few days, I haven't shut up about it. I mean, oh, I'm I'm tweeting inspired. nonstop. Uh, you get this is the most animated I've seen you. So you know, I posted an article speaking of Twitter. I posted an article on Twitter. Uh, if you want to see it? It's on Bill Barhead on Twitter, where I mentioned that global remittances are likely to be to have fallen at least thirty percent in March, and potentially more in April, and potentially more in May. And uh, for people who are unclear, remittances, I'm talking about migrant workers uh, and maybe second generation families sending money back to their country of origin. Uh, farmers sending money back to Mexico, uh, oil workers in, in the Middle East sending money back to their home in India, uh, medical workers in the US sending money back to the Philippines. These are common um, scenarios. Those migrant workers are out of work. Taxi drivers in Miami and Boston and New York from Haiti, which represents 30% of Haitian GDP, that money has stopped flowing, right? Haiti is now going to face an entirely new humanitarian crisis because of that money no longer flowing. Believe it or not, taxi drivers and their brethren represent um, over 20% and some people believe 30% of GDP. If that money disappears, they're in a depression regardless of what's happening in the rest of the world. Um, you Very know, true. I, I haven't thought this through to the degree you have, but it's obvious that the humanitarian cost of this is getting worse by the minute with no end in sight. And that really bothers me as somebody who spent a lot of time on the ground in these places because I don't see any other way out of this except to open up and let the chips fall where they may because we can't print enough money to save everyone. No, and we're not printing money to save people. We're really digging them into holes of uh, dependency. You know, you, you, you're, you're taking people out of the work and giving them paycheck. Uh, that's really the worst thing that you could do to somebody. Like it's, it's, it's take productive people and turn them into dependents of the, of the state. It's, it's absolutely terrible thing. And, you know, think about the impacts on culture, on productivity, on people's work ethic for many, many years to come when work is going to become less and less uh, important in their life and uh, universal basic income becomes more and more prevalent. I think the implications are just going to be absolutely tremendous. And it's just the, the hubris of people who thought, hey, you know, 
let's make this one tiny little change and then everything will get better. I think it's, it's uh, you know, now they're going to start saying, you know, we're already seeing the, the, this kind of, well, this is, you know, the no true Scotsman uh, argument applied to the lockdown, no true lockdown. Mm -hmm. Now everybody is not happy or they're going to start saying how well, you know, well, the lockdowns that were implemented are not exactly how I would have done it. So therefore... Um, you know, I, I, I can't be um, held responsible for this. I didn't do anything wrong. The kind of lockdown that I wanted would have involved these kinds of steps only, but not those kinds of steps. And for me, this is an absolutely infuriating thing to hear because, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's not only the people who say this. First of all, assume that, okay, well, I'm going to impose this lockdown, which is going to restrict your movement, and they'd see nothing wrong with that. They also even go a step further and think, not only do I want to impose this lockdown, but also I want to, you know, I want to violate your rights, but I also don't want anybody to violate my right to violate your right in the way that I want. You know, it's like we're going to have government implement things, but it's going to be ideal and perfect. And, you know, if government implements it a little bit differently, then it's no longer my idea. So I'm going to support them when they do it, but then if they do it differently, then it's not my idea and I don't bear responsibility for it. Well, you don't get to choose. Once you've accepted the notion that somebody gets to put a gun to somebody's head in order for public safety, you don't get to choose if that person is you or somebody else. You're going to end up at the other end of the gun. And so that's why you shouldn't support those things. And that's why you should just you know, do your own uh, uh, precaution. Yeah. I think really the the... the, the embarrassing thing for the team lockdown for the people who want to lock down the world is this just this ultimate inarguable fact which is nothing can infect you if you stay in your own home or if you stay in your own hazmat suit get a hazardous material suit if you need to leave the house and if you stay in your home you don't need to leave so if indeed this really is the next black plague and it's going to cause hundreds of millions of deaths you know People are going to kill themselves. They're not going to hurt you if you stay home and you don't need to leave your home. The notion that you need to force others is, it's the mark of somebody who's immature. It's the mark of somebody who doesn't understand, um, doesn't respect themselves and doesn't respect others. When you think that, you know, no, 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 no. Uh, you guys don't understand how diseases work. I have this magical insight into how diseases work and even though I can protect myself by staying home, I refuse to live in a society that is going to kill itself. And so therefore I have to put a gun to your head and force you to stay home and arrest you if you leave your house. Yeah. Wow. So, okay. Um, let's take a breath there. I'm, I'm going to try to ask you to generalize a little bit on, you know, not just focus on Corona. Um, I know there's a lot of people listening to this that totally agree with you. And I'm sure there's a huge percentage that don't, that's fine. Um, how do you think in general about right-sized government? You know, are there services do you think that governments are better at providing than private industry at all? No, absolutely not. Um, for anything in the world that can be provided um, with the threat of violence can be provided better without the threat of violence. But building so, roads aren't provided under the threat of violence, for example, right? I mean... Yeah, uh, they are. How do you finance roads? By taxes. Mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. inflation, both of which are ultimately... So you would take it that far and say even uh, even roads are better off, uh, you know, by private citizens financing. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, we already have, you know, the best roads in the world and the most functional roads in the world are almost always toll roads. They're privately owned. 
and in fact, you know, this is uh, this is this is something that's very common that people think, well, nobody else would build roads, and in fact, uh, you know, the, the answer to that is that we have spent the last 50, 60 years massively over investing in roads because governments have taken that kind of ideological. Uh, justification for it. In fact, you know, this entire model of suburbia and the massive sprawl is heavily subsidized by the fact that government is paying for roads. So government charges everybody taxes and then uh, builds the roads. That is a massive incentive for everybody to live their life uh, around the road and utilize it. Because, you know, if you're if you live in a small city and you don't want to have a city that is around or, I mean, in a, in a, in a small neighborhood that doesn't have large roads, you know, um, people would build the roads that they need and the roads would, um, you know, they'd have a very high cost because you can't build a playground and you can't build a school, you can't build a house when you build a road. So there is a very high cost to roads. But when government can expropriate land for roads and when government can expropriate taxes for the roads, we're going to end up with an enormous amount of it. And the result of it is that you end up with cities that are just essentially roads where everybody needs to continuously drive around all day to get everywhere. And the density of the population is very tiny, which yeah. would uh, is very low. Whereas, you know, I, my, my favorite illustration of this is there was a, an, two aerial satellite photos according, taken of the same, at the same scale, at the same size, of the city of Florence and uh, some, uh, some interchange in Atlanta. And the two of them are the same size. You yes. could fit the entire city of Florence where all these incredible artists lived and worked for hundreds of years and all these amazing things and, and this financial center for hundreds of years of Europe. You could fit all of that in one interchange in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that Atlanta is so much less densely populated because everybody needs to be continuously driving around the roads. So I think if we got rid of government providing roads, we'd have... Um, we'd have a much more efficient allocation for roads. We'd have more efficient uh, town design. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and I'll go even further. You know, even national defense, I think, can be provided uh, privately and police force and courts and uh, all of that stuff. It can be provided uh, privately. In fact, it already is. Um, you know, if you think about it, I, I, it's uh, in the last couple of years, the number of private security contractors around the world has exceeded the number of police force around the world. Yeah. Now there are more people who have uh, more people who work in private security than in, in, in uh, police. And if you think about it, you know anybody who has actual serious money to protect, uh, say a business or a jeweler or a bank, nobody counts on the police for their protection. They have their own private security, and I think that makes sense. You know, I as a taxpayer, I should not be forced to subsidize your highly insecure jewelry business in the middle of town with. Paying for my police for for police for my taxes. I mean, bars, the one paying for it. bars in New York City where you went to college do that, right? They'll hire uh, probably policemen, but they'll hire them privately because you know they need their own. For whatever reason, they can't rely yep. on police for what they're doing, right? And that's in in the West too. So I get your point there. Um, how would you how would you replace like so so you know your wife murders you? Uh, I hope she doesn't, but I let it, you know theoretically your wife murders you and uh, she needs to go to jail. Um, how does that work in a, in a model where there's no, you know, government owned courts? I think the, um, the, the, uh, the, the best analysis that I've found with this is, um, to think about security as a good, if we didn't have government, um, monopolizing the security market, at least ideologically telling us that it monopolizes it, 
um, we'd have a much more developed security market. And I think the way it would work is that insurance companies would be providing it. I, I recommend a book called The Myth of National Defense. Um, it's a collection of essays edited by Hans Hermann Hoppe. And in it, he discusses the insurance model and he says, you know, I'd buy an insurance from an insurance company and obviously they now have an incentive to keep me healthy and to keep me safe. And that then will, uh, you know, over time, uh, this business model, if you didn't have governments uh, disrupting it, over time, that insurance company will invest in my own security. It will invest in, um, in deterrence. It'll say that if anybody kills my client, we're going to come after him and, and, and find them and, and, and hunt them down. And, uh, you know, uh, so... Uh, you know, paying them a premium every year means that they'll do everything possible to protect you. And I think... You're saying because their other customers would be watching, if if there was no retribution against your wife for killing you, uh, that they would lose their business from all the other people who they would... And also, and also they'd have to pay out the insurance. They'd have to pay out the health insurance to my the rest of my family, hopefully not my wife who killed me. Uh, but, you know, they're, they, they need me to stay alive for them not to pay insurance. If they let, be, let the people under their watch die, they go out of business and they get replaced by a better company that knows how to protect people better. So, so, so I guess in many ways, your, your worldview on kind of live and let live is an extension of the Austrian model uh, as well. Um, do you see any kind of realistic path to the reality of the world today? to the worldview that you're espousing? The way that I look at it, I, I don't, I, I have no interest in building the um, anarchist utopia of a world where, you know, we've got zero government in the same way that I'm under no illusion that I'm ever going to witness a world that has no theft and no murder. No, no interest rape. because you, you don't think it's realistic or no interest because it's not, uh, you know, it's not, not, not tenable, uh, not feasible. Because uh, as an economist, I think in terms of marginalism, I think of just moving from here to the yeah. better step. I, yeah, yeah. I think it's, yeah, yeah I, I think, you know, the, 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 the utopia is, um, thinking in terms of utopia is how you get yourself into a worse situation. Like, how sure. do I jump to that utopia? Well, you end up setting yourself backward. Sure. But if you make marginal steps, life improves. So as, as far as I'm concerned, you know, I, I'm, I'm confident that I'm not going to live in a world that has no governments before I, well, confident, maybe, maybe not too confident, but you know, there's still going to be governments. There will still be coercion. There will still be murder. There will still be rape. There will still be theft. But the challenge with all, with all of those things, um, as, as a peaceful person, as a libertarian, as an anarchist, is to live your life so that you don't take part in them and you are not the victim of them. That's what really matters for me. So I don't want, I don't care if, uh, well, I do care, obviously, but, you know, it's not my goal to put all governments out of business right now. Uh, my concern is to protect myself and my family from the things that they do. And so I think, you know, Bitcoin can help move us uh, enormously toward the world that is much better by allowing each individual to better protect themselves from the predation of government. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, as, as I say in my book, the, the, the really interesting thing is that if the more Bitcoin takes off, the less governments are able to finance themselves from our inflation. Yeah, yeah. Are there, I'm curious, are there politicians, any politicians at all that you admire uh, for any reason? Mm, Ron Paul. I, I like Ron Paul. Um, um, it seems Maxine Bernier would say that there is a role for government, I would guess. 
right? Yeah, he's a, he's a minarchist. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I think there's. Uh, I'm I'm not sure actually. From Paul is a full-on anarchist. If you if you really you know if you really get him talking, give him a couple of drinks, he'll probably confess that he's. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, I, I I did once at the at the round table, and I I, I never asked him this, and I should have. Uh, oh really? He did uh, have yeah. too. I I, I think I'm allowed <laughs> to say that. Uh, yeah, but guy. I mean, I think you know the, the, these kind of purity tests are. Uh, it you know we're not getting rid of the U.S. government tomorrow, so that you know Ron Paul and I can sit and argue about whether we should but, keep some semblance of it or not. But okay, so let's chunk it the way you described. You know, baby steps. I don't remember the word you used, but let's let's call the baby steps. Twenty-five years sounds like a you know reasonable time frame for a few baby steps. What do you think the world looks like in 25 years from a geopolitical perspective? Have we moved even with baby steps towards your utopia? Or we have to, have we, are we moving in the wrong direction like we have in the last few years? I think if Bitcoin is around in 25 years, then I can't see how we haven't uh, moved in the right direction. It, I think it necessarily follows. If Bitcoin is around in 25 years, it's going to have to necessarily be bigger than what it is today, I think. It's... it's quite unlikely that it would just stick around and stay small. So if Bitcoin is already at a stage where it's, let's say, 10, 20, 30 percent of the global money supply or more, then it's already a serious threat for governments. It's already um, making governments, um, it's already making governments, uh, you know, unable to extract, excuse me, as much uh, seniorage as they otherwise would. So I can see it being more and more of a... um, of a limit on government. And I think moving to a world similar to the gold standard where governments uh, need to spend from taxation and need to tax the money first before spending it, I think will enormously change the world. You know, we don't have to go to the uh, to, to my anarchist utopia if we just go back to 1900 uh, classical liberalism, 1890 classical liberalism. Mm-hmm. You know, that world is an enormously better world than what we have today obviously not technologically our technology today is infinitely superior but if you combine our technology today with that kind of political system where you know just to mention some brief examples you did not have a war on drugs you did not have an fda you did not have a cdc you did not have any of these organizations that are uh, supposedly out there to look out for you but really you know, like with everything that is free, if it's free, then you're not the consumer, right? You are the product. Yeah, totally agree. Um, okay, so I got to ask you, so you, you mentioned uh, health and eating lots of meat. So what's your, what's your go-to, what's your go-to steak? Do you have a favorite? Porterhouse. Porterhouse. Okay, do you, yeah. you eat at home yourself or? Yeah, I, I love to grill. I'm a, I've always been a big fan of uh, grilling. So I grill a lot. I grill on wood fire and I grill um, on uh, uh, a gas grill as well. And um, yeah, I, I basically eat only meat. I eat between two and four pounds of beef every day. Basically. Every or day? Like, yeah, I eat nothing wow. else. I drink water wow. and I eat meat. So what's, what's, what's breakfast uh, for safe? I mean, what, is, what does a meal look like? Um, uh, burgers, steaks, burgers for breakfast. I love that. Yeah. I've never heard yeah. anyone say that in my life. Just the burger patty itself. You know, you make yeah. the burger patty and you eat it. It's, it's delicious. Yeah. Here, here's an excellent tip for you. If you're ever traveling, this is eating like meat. People think it's difficult. Where are you going to find uh, yeah. meat? But it's actually the easiest thing in the world. Just go to any fast food place and just order the burger patties. 
they will have them everywhere and they're very fast, they're very cheap and they're extremely nutritious and extremely delicious. So $6 at McDonald's and you'll have five, six patties and you'll be done. Now with the porterhouse, there's no potato, uh, no veggies, no wine, just steak mm. and water. Steak and water. Really? I've, 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 yeah, I mean, I've, I, I've had all the other things all my life and, uh, Nothing tastes as good as the uh, the high or the, the 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 clean feeling that you get when you've just had a lot of beef and nothing else. So you're staring like you're, at that baked potato, butter dripping off the side, and it's not going through. Man, oh man, I got to have that. No, not at all, not at all. I mean, yeah, it, yeah, I mean, uh, just imagine replacing that with another porterhouse, and now you're talking. <laughs> your, your wife's sipping a Bordeaux with her porterhouse, and there's no temptation. <laughs> She's like, "Here, honey, relax, have a sip." I mean, um, uh, to be fair, like I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, meat and water is 99% of what I eat. I'll occasionally have a bite of something that my wife is uh, having or I'll, uh, I'll have a little snack here and there, but I, I don't consider that stuff food. I consider it drugs. It's recreation. <laughs> Plants are for recreation. They're yeah. not food. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, you're a uh, uh, fascinating guy. Uh, we've been at this for a while. I think we're going on an hour and a half. So so um, I think you're, you're probably exhausted. I, I really appreciate the time. This has been, uh, I do a lot of these, and this has been by far, you know, a top, a top three, maybe even top two conversation might even be my favorite. So I got to process all of it and, and see, uh, we may even have to chunk this up for our audience. So, um, so people listening to me now may not realize that they're getting this in parts, but uh, we'll see. So um, we're also, uh, when we release this, um, we're going to give away a couple of books, but I, I would strongly encourage everyone to go out. I have it on my Kindle. Uh, I carry it everywhere I go. It's on my phone. I actually look up reference stuff all the time. If, I, if I'm going to explain stock to flow, for example, I'll get out the formula from the book and I'll write it down and, you know, I'll remember. And, or if I'm talking to somebody about, you know, gold and history of money, I used to go to the Ascent of Money and that's been replaced with your book now. Uh, ah, so, nice. um, so I, I think it makes, it, it just makes more sense. Uh, so definitely buy the, the Bitcoin standard um, and carry it on your smartphone uh, everywhere you go. It's the, uh, it's the Bible for the Bitcoin space if you are interested in where this is all going. Uh, you're a super interesting guy, Safe, and uh, thank you so much for giving us uh, all this amazing time. Thank you so much, Bill. It was a lot of fun uh, chatting to you and uh, appreciate uh, you giving me the chance. What an amazing conversation. Thanks for listening. We have a very special surprise this week for our listeners. Simply tweet a link about this episode that you can find on abra.com slash podcast, mentioning our Twitter handle at abraglobal in the tweet for a chance to win a signed copy of The Bitcoin Standard. The winner will be announced on Twitter by June 5th. To find out more about Abra, visit abra.com. See you in the next episode.